Now, we've all heard the expression uh, kissing cousins, but what about the phrase uh, or the idea of marrying your cousin? That sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Well, that's part of a curious conversation I had with our guest today here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, Dr. Kathy Day is <laughs> from the uh, Center of National Center for Epidemiology and Population Health at the ANU. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, Rod. Now, Cathy, we got talking last year because you were a candidate in the ACT election. And before we go into uh, cousins and things related, uh, maybe just tell me briefly your experience of being a candidate in the ACT election. What was it like? Well, last year, of course, it was really difficult because the most way, the most effective way to meet voters is to go and knock on their doors and talk to them. And so, you know, in 2020, we were unable to do that until the last couple of weeks of the campaign. So a lot more was done on sort of social media and that sort of thing. It's a very weird campaign, but um, happy that uh, we've got a, a re-elected uh, Labor government. <laughs> well, it seems appropriate that you were constrained because of the uh, the plague, which is now happening. But we're not going to talk about that because I think, as you suggested, Cathy, our listeners... Uh, We've, we've heard enough about the plague for a while. Absolutely. Let's, let's talk about cousins instead, right? So, you know, you did your PhD research on cousin marrying and a f couple of related things. Can you just give me a... Well, what was that? Um, so I looked at marriage patterns um, in three main areas. I looked at cousin marriage, people who married their cousins. I looked at geographical mobility, so how far apart people uh, were born, uh, before they were married, um, makes sense, uh, and uh, illegitimacy from the perspective of how it impacted somebody's prospects um, of getting married, whether they were the parent of an illegitimate child or an illegitimate child themselves. Uh, this is in the um, 18th and 19th and early 20th century um, in England. Um, and those three things are actually related uh, to each other, which is why I, I did them all. Um, so, for example... In the laws of the time, the people who were responsible for paying for an illegitimate child's upkeep were the parish. And if a child was born out of wedlock, the place where it was actually born um, was the place that had to pay. So what would happen is if a woman became pregnant away from her home parish, the first thing that the other parish would do was send her back to her own parish because they didn't want to pay. It was a quite draconian system. You had uh, It's what's called a removal order. So she was removed from the parish that she lived in and forced to return to the parish in which she herself was born. Oh, there's so many issues coming out of that and uh, a woman's power is certainly not, not least of them, but very much a thing about social norms and patterns of behaviour that have changed quite a lot. Let's talk about the cousin part first, because that's the most unusual. But we, we have a lot, a lot of interesting things to, to, to talk about today. Uh, cousins, does it really matter that much whether you marry your cousin? 
Not as much as people in Australia and Britain think uh, think it does. Any two random people having children together will have about a two percent chance of having a recessive genetic defect in the in the child. Um, if you marry your first cousin, or if you have children with your first cousin, uh, that rises to four percent. Now you can say, well, that's doubling your risk, and it does indeed double your risk. But also, ninety six percent of the children of first cousin marriages. Um, have absolutely no genetic defects. When you look at um, first cousins once removed, the odds are about uh, 3%, and when you get to second cousins, it's 2%. So by the time you're getting to second cousins, it's not uh, any greater risk than marrying. What what kind of defects would you see in those 1% or 2%? Uh, deafness is, in fact, the uh, most likely uh, recessive genetic defect. Um, deafness? Deafness, yes, <laughs> at, the, at the moment. Um, but it's also racially... Um, divided, if you like. So people of northern European descent are much more likely to carry the cystic fibrosis gene. People of African descent are much more likely to carry the sickle cell anemia gene. Then we've got thalassemia from the Mediterranean um, and so on. Um, Ashkenazi Jews are more likely to carry the recessive gene for Tay-Sachs disease and so on. Um, so if you're marrying your cousin or you're having children with your cousin, then uh, and they're from the same ethnic group, then you're more likely to be um, having one of those sorts of conditions. And how common is it? How common is cousin marrying? Is it legal in Australia? Yes, it's always been legal in Australia. I get I get asked that uh, all the time. It's also been legal uh, in Britain since uh, 1542. Um, so it's it, the reason people think it's illegal is because of the Christian view of uh, of relationships with people um, who are related to you. Um, so, for example, in the Bible, um, they have the uh, in Leviticus it talks about who you may not uncover the nakedness of, which uh, many sort of uh, many Christians in uh, 18th century England interpret that to mean these are people you can't marry. Um, so. They had a generalised fear of having relations with someone that you're related to. But the problem was it never mentioned cousins. It did say things like, well, you know, your, your sister or brother or, you know, parents and things like that. So people who live in countries that are predominantly historically Christian, like Australia, the UK and so on, have this kind of inbuilt fear of cousin marriage that's completely absent in much of the rest of the world. Well, it really strikes me that there is very complicated rules about uh, relationships in Aboriginal, Indigenous communities. Now, I guess that's outside your scope, but they have all sorts of very involved rules about who you, they can be related to, your tribe, your father and so on. Do you know anything about that? Yes. So... Um there are many, many Aboriginal cultures and many, many different ways uh, that uh, marriage is prescribed within all those different Aboriginal cultures. And here I'm talking about um, traditional Aboriginal culture where you didn't actually get a choice about who you married. Um, it was, you know, as you rightly say, it's be, you know laid out that you would have to marry. For example, you know, if you're a woman, you would have to mar might have to marry your father's, you know, brother's son or something like that. Um, with cultures, uh, with these kind of cultures where you have prescribed rules about who you can marry and must marry, uh, they have cousin marriage over and over and over again. 
And what happens with those cultures that have consistent uh, cousin marriage, there's actually lower chances of recessive genetic defects. How? Oh. You yes. mean the opposite of what you'd expect? Absolutely. So you look at um, Tamil culture in South India, for example, where the ideal partner um, for a man is to uh, marry his sister's daughter. So that's his niece. Um, and so they, traditionally, Tamil culture, people from the Tamil culture um, were highly inbred compared to others. But because they've been doing this for about 3,000 years, in effect you know, the recessive genetic defects have, have basically worked themselves out. Um, so the take-home message, I guess, is that if people have a set of uh, rules about cousin marriage that has gone on for centuries, then that's absolutely appropriate for them, but uh, not for others. Oh, this leads to so many places, <laughs> Cathy. Uh, I'm thinking of the British royal family and incidents of bleeding. Uh, what's, I'm not sure the medical term. Haemophilia. Haemophilia. So haemophilia, I just have to stop you there because I people say that all the time. Haemophilia is not a recessive genetic defect. It's a dominant genetic defect. So that means that you only need one parent um, to have it. So, so being inbred doesn't... It has nothing to do with it, no. Uh, being descended from Queen Victoria does matter, <laughs> um, but it's got nothing to do with inbreeding. Sorry, people say that all the time. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. See, I love it when I learn something new on, on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, my guest here, Dr Cathy Day. And now, now with the Aboriginal uh, rules of relationships... I think it's because they were nomadic people and they had a very small population in one area, so you need a bit of mixing. So I've read somewhere, tell me if I've got this wrong, that a viable human population is about 500. If you go below 500, it's not a sustainable population in the long term. I read that in Tim Flannery's book. Is, do you, is, that, that, is that correct? Well, know? that's what we believe, yes, absolutely. And is that because of the genetic mixing or well, do you know why that is? It's a whole range of things. It's related, as you say, to um, it's not so much the genetic mixing, it's genetic diversity. You need to have a whole bunch of people who randomly have different differences from each other so that when bad things happen, at least some of the population will have uh uh, uh, the ability to fight it. So, for example, about 1% of the world um, is actually naturally immune to HIV. Now, it's not that they sat there and worked it out or that their ancestors thought one day HIV is going to come along, but people have these genetic changes that may not make a difference until something bad happens. I mentioned earlier about cystic fibrosis as an example. You would think, well, why would we actually... If it's so bad for you, why would we continue to have a gene like that circulating in the northern European uh, population? But what we believe is that having one copy, one bad copy of the gene, actually protects you from tuberculosis, for example. Uh, similarly, um, Ash, uh, I mentioned Tay-Sachs disease. That appears to have um, the ability, if you've only got one bad gene, to protect you um, from tuberculosis. Oh, and I, I think I read years ago, and if I get this correctly, it was sickle cell anemia and... Malaria. And yes. malaria. Yeah. And thalassemia is also malaria, yeah. So it's a genetic disorder on one hand, but protective in another sense. That's right. And so this idea of having 500 people, I mean, that's a mathematical model, but no reason to doubt it um, in this case, um, that actually you have to have a certain diversity of people. You don't want them all to be exactly the same in case 
something bad happens. Well, it immediately strikes me that when we're talking about conserving animal populations, mm. if you don't have genetic diversity, and what we've done with human population growth is we've split up areas of habitat so this area can't communicate with that other area, so this population becomes split, and, mm. and then you lose that diversity. So... It, it that's all... absolutely right, and that's a that's a real problem with certain endangered species. Is there are so few of them left that they they're losing their diversity? Yes. Oh, now the other aspects of your research. So there was the cousin marrying, mm. and then there was the geographic spread of people mm. uh, in families. Tell me more about that. Well, I'm a biological anthropologist, so the thing that I was looking for was yeah, I'm interested in is gene flow in this particular case. So what I looked at is. Um, the birth locations of the two parties to a marriage. Um, up until about the middle of the 19th century, and I'm talking here about the UK, um, the, the family would normally be established wherever it was that the husband was born. It's called very local residence, but it means that um, the wife might come from another parish, but she would move into the husband's parish. So at that time, the men didn't move very far at all. Uh, and so their Y chromosomes <laughs> kind of more or less stayed in the same spot. And, but the women themselves, although they did the moving, also didn't move very far. So in the area that I, um, I looked at, 40% um, of people uh, were married, were born uh, less than four miles from, uh, from each other, as it were, and about 80% were born within 10 miles uh, of each other. So this, it, what the long-term outcome of that, if that were to continue, and I presume it hasn't continued, but the long-term outcome of that might be like over many uh, hundreds or thousands of years, you might get a species split in a population where one uh, branch is geographically split from another and then it diverges from the other group. Is that like a mechanism of evolution, do you think? That's certainly a mechanism of evolution, but that's not what we're talking no, about. No, here. you weren't so, looking at evolution. I'm, I've kind of gone off. Oh, it. you've gone. Okay, thanks. I've, 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 gone, on, I've gone on a tangent on that <laughs> that's one. That's right. Uh, but yes, de definitely, if populations um, split from each other, that is indeed how you have differentiation. It doesn't necessarily mean they become different species, but they can certainly. That's a very change. long term thing, yes. Yeah. So, what, what would be the outcome of this then, and if you let it go, if it well, continued like that? Well, the. No particularly good or bad thing. Uh, so men have Y chromosomes, um, as I'm sure you're aware, and I'm sure your listeners are aware. So what it would mean is that when you're uh, testing for genetic um, differences and trying to work out whether or not you've got Viking ancestors, which everyone seems to want to do, um, you would have to take into account that the Y chromosomes didn't move very much. But mitochondrial DNA, which everybody has but only women can pass to their children, that would move... Uh, more, but still not a massive amount. And But this all changed. So uh, by the middle of the 19th century, you had railways and so on, and those little Y chromosomes were running all over England, <laughs> spreading themselves everywhere. So, um, so it is a bit different. You need to take it into account, for example, if you do one of these ethnicity uh, tests, you know, through one of the commercial companies, they can supposedly tell you, your ancestry uh, and so on, you have to take into account how the genes have moved to be able to work out whether or not it oh, is so true. if I wanted to know my ancestry, so uh, my family came from Cornwall or region, or part of my family does at least, that's a few generations back, 
but we think there might be Aboriginal somewhere, but we don't know. But that would be very, very slight if, if there is any. I guess that's too small a mix, do you think? It, it depends on how far back it is. Um, so what the, what the commercial companies do is they go around and they take um, a whole bunch of testing. Uh, they test people who've been in the same location for hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, issues with trying to test uh, Aboriginal DNA is that with uh, a f exceptions of uh, people in the Northern Territory and so on, there are almost no people of Aboriginal descent in, say, Victoria, New South Wales and so on that have no European admixture. So it's one of those things you, you couldn't test you know, a, a Wiradjuri person and say, right, this gene is 100% Wiradjuri or as Aboriginal. As a marker of that. As a marker. Um, so that makes it really complex. Um, it's not impossible. Um, but and and there are sensitivities too. Some Indigenous communities are very unhappy about being sampled, so on. So Absolutely, because then that, you know, that opens up the whole question of, you know, what is a real Aboriginal person? And that's not about genetics. You know, it's about self-identification and it's about acceptance by the community. It's not just about genetics. And so it is um, a very difficult question. You, you don't want to be saying, well, I'm... As they do in uh, Canada, they actually say that um, they're Indigenous people, you know, you have to be at least one-sixteenth part. You know, for them it's about blood um, and genetics, whereas in Australia we have a different view. You can be Aboriginal and it's, it's not entirely about genetics. It is about... You do have to have Aboriginal ancestry, but it's not just that. Oh, so it's a complex mix here mm. of uh, hard science and social norms, behaviours, uh, culture and so on. We might uh, cut to a song break, Cathy, I think. Maybe something you would like. Oh, a nutbush. Do you think <laughs> now do you think nutbush is uh what's it though? Twenty five was the speed limit or something like that? <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> Here we are on Fuzzy Logic and our guest today, Dr. Cathy Day from the National Centre of Epidemiology. Say that with a beer. And population health on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, Kathy, we were talking about your parentage, and so let's just say I didn't know who my father was, or I suspected my father was somebody, or wanted to check. Uh, can I do that with my DNA? Yes, you can. <laughs> generally speaking, um, I've done a few of these um, over the last year or so, where people either are not sure who their actual father is or their grandfather. Um, it's always the men. Uh, and um, if, you, if you actually know who the person is, then, of course, you can just do a regular paternity test. But this might not be the case. Uh, so what you can do is you can uh, have your own DNA taken and then you compare it to millions and millions and millions of other people who've also had their DNA taken. Now, it's a complex process because it's not just the science side of it, you know, that DNA says you've got this much in common, but you also have to look at the, the actual paper records and, the, and, uh, and think about cultural practices and those sorts of things. So you can put the two things together, the paper records and the DNA, um, and then hopefully come up with something that's reasonably um, accurate. And then once you have an idea, once you've honed in on someone or a group, then uh, 
then you can be more specific well, there, after there's that. There's this kind of notion that uh, DNA is really exact mm -hmm. and that you can't get it wrong. It's I know that we talk about a fingerprint being, you know, you only have your fingerprint is unique across almost the entire planet of, of the Earth. Mm. So is is it something like that that it's a different the difference between precision and accuracy? So it's very precise, but not necessarily accurate. Uh, depends on what you think about <laughs> accuracy. Like, so in other words, when you take your DNA and you go onto one of these commercial websites, it doesn't say to you, this is your great-grandfather or this is your third cousin. It'll give you a big wobbly uh, number saying this person has so many centimorgans. It's just a measure of how close you are. Uh, this person has so many centimorgans in common with you. Um, so it's very accurate uh, and very precise saying... You have this much in common, but it doesn't necessarily say this person is your mother's father's. Oh, the accuracy in this case would be that I'm thinking you are, you are not that person's child, and so the interpretation, so the measure they give is accurate, mm. but the interpretation of it is not necessarily. So you, yes. So if you're going child, you can be a pretty hundred percent certain about that, because the number of centimorgans that you have in common is so huge, you could only possibly be that person's child. But when I was talking about finding the, someone's father or grandfather or whatever, what you're usually starting with is someone's third cousin or fourth cousin, and you have to work your way back to the father, unless you just happen to be incredibly lucky that you're biological father has taken a you know a DNA test what you're actually doing is working your way towards your father uh, through your cousins oh, okay so it's, it's more um, a less direct connection in that case that's yeah. right so that's what happened with the Golden State killer that you would have heard about in California mm. is that they were able to get uh, so this is a man that you know murdered uh, many women and um, they had his DNA but he wasn't in any DNA database. So what they were able to do is locate, uh, using his DNA, sort of a whole bunch of his sort of third cousins, um, and then through, then by doing a whole series of analysis and looking at things, they were able to narrow it down to his relationship to all of those people and then identify him. So not suggesting your father is the Golden State Killer, but it's the, it's the same process when you're trying to look for a, uh, an individual. They don't they, it's not necessary that they had the test themselves. Now, saying I, I want imagine myself or a listener wanted to pursue this process, how would they go about doing that? Uh, the first thing they would do is to get a commercial DNA test. Um, at the moment, uh, Ancestry has the biggest database, but there are plenty of other ones um, out there. And also what you can do is no matter what company you test with, you can actually upload it to a site called GEDmatch. They will take anybody's from any commercial site. They say that in America at the moment, 60% of the population could be identified in this way uh, through DNA. It doesn't mean that 60% of the people have taken DNA tests. It means 60% of the people are closely related enough to someone who has a DNA test to actually be able to identify them. That really says a lot about how DNA technology has progressed in the last few years, that we can even do 
anything remotely like this. Have you seen that movie Gattaca? Yes, I always think about that, yes. Oh, do you? <laughs> yes. Do you, maybe for the listener who hasn't uh, seen the movie, do you want to give a quick uh, uh, impression of what that movie is? Uh, so Gattaca, the, the name Gattaca comes from the letters G-A-T-C, which are the four, uh, the initials of the four um, things that make up your DNA is probably the simplest way of doing it. Uh, it's a future world where... Absolutely everything is determined by your genetics. So you go to have a get a job, you get your DNA tested and they'll say, you know, you're suitable or not suitable. Uh, you decide to get a boyfriend, you take a follicle of his hair and you get his hair tested and they tell you whether or not he's suitable. It's an amazing concept. And it's quite dystopian, isn't it? Mm. And if I recall the movie, is it Jude Law's the lead? And So Jude Law is uh, one of them. So one he, of, one he, of the... he's the perfect specimen. Uh, in the movie, um, although he's had a, a spinal injury and so he's no longer perfect. So what he does is he sells his DNA you That's know, to right. someone I else. That's right. I think it's his brother or someone. He wants to go on a space mission or something and he can't. And in the workplace, they vacuuming up little hair follicles mm. and uh, dust shedded from his skin yeah. so, that, so they can check on his DNA. And he's got a heart... He's got a heart condition. Uh, he's yeah. got a heart condition. But he has the fake DNA, so from Jude Law. Well, Jude Law's character. <laughs> yeah, no, it, that is dystopian because yeah. there's no concept of consent in this. So if I wanted to trace my ancestry and say I suspected that uh, a family member was this person or whatever, isn't there an element of consent there that I have to, uh, that they would have to agree or how does that work? Um, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at, but so if I upload my DNA, uh, then what it will do is match me with other people who've uploaded their own DNA. Oh, who have implicitly consented or explicitly, Ex explicitly, explicitly consent. consented. And when I said about the 60% in the US, yeah. so 60% of people, either their parents or siblings or first, second cousins have already uploaded their DNA. So... Okay, so the other person would consent by uploading also. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and there's no point in in uh, uploading your DNA if you're not prepared to sort of match it with with other people. Oh, okay, because I was imagining a scenario where you know you 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 privately harvest their DNA, or whatever. Oh, no. Anyway, let's not let's no, not no 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 no, let, no let, let's let's not go there then. <laughs> okay, so if I wanted to trace my ancestry back. Through my, my lineage, mm. not just the immediate, say, and I said earlier, I thought my ancestry goes back to Cornwall or maybe Germany or somewhere mm. before then. Could I do that? How, how far back could I go? And it would get to give me a geographical uh, location for my heritage. So if you're only interested in the geographical location, then they can um, do that with reasonable accuracy in places where they have lots of testing. So for example, Cornwall, straight up, they'll be able to tell you that you know you have 40% Cornish or 20% or whatever. Places like Europe, they're able to divide that into sort of big blobs, you know, so you can say, well, you're sort of from the Iberian Peninsula or from you know, Central Europe and those sorts of things. It's a bit more wobbly in places where they haven't done an awful lot of testing. Uh, so, you know, for example, uh, places in Africa, places in India, they can only, you know, narrow it down to two or three broad locations. But, yeah, it's, it's reasonably accurate. 
All right, I think we might break to a song track here. What do you think? Uh, Nutbush City Limits? Yeah, no, <laughs> no, there is no Nutbush. I think somebody, somebody slipped the wrong CD into the case. <laughs> and I'm going to do some genetic testing on that uh, disc to see whose fingers were on it. <laughs> Uh, and other such silliness here on Fuzzy Logic. My guest, uh, Dr. Kathy Day from the National Centre of Epidemiology. I think we might talk about something really different next after this uh, random song break. Sounds good. Let's take a trip to Mumbai and the slums because that's a fascinating story you have there, Kathy. Fuzzy Logic. Yeehaw, we played the right track then. How about that, Buffalo Girls? And would you believe that is from the movie, the soundtrack, Deliverance? <laughs> okay. I don't have quite such a good uh, image in my mind anymore. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of, um, I don't know, a backwards theme there. But uh, uh, here on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking uh, epidemiology, DNA, ancestry and population health. Now, we're going to take a 90-degree turn here. And I did say Mumbai, but what the heck. Uh, let's call it New Delhi instead, because that's where our guest went, Kathy. <laughs> Why were you in New Delhi? Uh, well, when I finished my PhD, I felt so incredibly privileged to live in a place where, you know, the government would give me a small stipend to study something that I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I thought I wanted to give back in some way. And a friend suggested that I go and uh, work for an Indian non-government organisation uh, in New Delhi, working in the slums of Delhi. So, you know, I pranced up there and said, look, you know, I'm a biological anthropologist. I can talk about nutrition. I can talk about building sewers and, uh, you know, latrines. I could talk about HIV. I can do all this stuff. What do you want me to do? And they said, teach English. So <laughs> I went, okay, all right. Yes, good, can do that. Um, so I undertook a Master of Applied Linguistics online from the University of New England whilst I was teaching in a slum. Uh, teaching English in a slum, because despite being a native English speaker, it doesn't mean that I actually knew how to teach English. And by studying how to teach English, I learnt so much more about how absolutely wacky language uh, and how difficult it is to learn. And English is such a mongrel language. Now, I suppose you didn't speak any of the local language, did you? That's right. So in New Delhi, people speak Hindi. Uh, so uh, not everyone in India speaks Hindi, but in northern uh, India, it's, it's Hindi. Um, and at that time, uh, I didn't speak any of it. But the concept was that you would teach in English um, to, in order to help the uh, children to uh, adjust and to learn and so on. Um, English is everywhere in India. And people weren't learning English to speak to English speakers. They were learning English to be able to fill in forms, uh, to negotiate with the police, to uh, go to court, any of those things. All the, all the laws in India are in English and uh, uh, court cases are in English and so on. So they probably had rudimentary English when they started, right? You weren't starting right. from zero base. Now, now we had a, a coffee before we came up to the studio here, Cathy, and it's all very nice. We had green tea and a piece of a slice of banana cake and, and a coffee, and it's a beautiful day out there. Being in New Delhi is such a different... I can't get my head around. What was your impression that day one, you, can't, you walk into the slum, what, what struck you about that? 
Uh, what struck me about it, I guess, was how crowded it was unbelievably crowded so we're in a studio here that is uh what three three by three, three meters three by three meters um and in this sort of space you would typically have 10 to 12 people living um absolutely i'm talking here a slum i'm not talking about everybody in new delhi um the other thing was all the children working um particularly girls if uh, a parent was going to invest anything in education, they would invest it uh, in the boys. And so you had little girls as young as three working. So in Mayapuri, which is the slum that, uh, that I was teaching in, it's an industrial area. They uh, break down cars and motorbikes uh, by hand, you know, so you've got literally thousands of people there dismantling cars and, and motorbikes and everything uh, on the street. So what would happen is that the little girls would have these huge magnets and drag them along behind them trying to pick up the bits of metal and the filings and all those sorts of things and then take that back to their parents who could then sell the metal for recycling and so on. And that was a real shock to me to see all these little girls basically just scavenging in the dirt. They were absolutely filthy because, of course, they work, you know, they're in an environment that's covered in oil and grease and, you know. Alongside the railway tracks, you said. That's right. So where the people lived was right on the railway tracks and so close to the railway tracks that, you know, if a train was going by and you opened the front door that, you know, you'd lose your front door. Um, it was near a place, a, a railway station called the uh, Delhi Cantonment. Um, and so for that meant that it had about eight tracks, uh, eight railway tracks. And so what would happen is that there weren't any toilets and things there, that uh, people would have to go across six or eight railway tracks to defecate on the, on the other side um, of the railway tracks so they weren't defecating like around their homes um, and unfortunately that meant that on average somewhere between about six and eight kids a year were killed uh, trying because to... they would dodge one train and hit the next one that's right yeah they misjudged the trains because there were so many of them moving around um, but they have to go to the other side of the railway tracks to be able to relieve themselves and um, the buildings that they lived in were they like bits of wood uh, corrugated of... iron all kind of that's, you know, uh, advertising hoardings, you know, big uh, political signs that someone's pulled down from somewhere. Um, as you say, bits of wood, bits of brick, bits of everything. Uh, the electricity was uh, stolen, basically, so they would connect into the, the main ones. And what that meant was that there were, like, literally thousands and thousands of electrical wires there. Extraordinarily dangerous. Um, and, of course, once things... If they, you know, if there's ever a fire, um, then the whole lot goes. Absolutely everything goes. And there had been a fire in Mayapuri um, a couple of years before um, I, uh, I arrived and people showed me the photos, just everything gone. Um, now, this really does tap into your work in epidemiology or, or population health because we were also talking about it before the show uh, personalised medicine and I was saying to you well you now can do genetic testing and they can tailor a, a therapy to your genetic mate to your genome and so on but here we're talking about people who will be lucky to get disparin I guess 
And so do you want to contrast for us the, the difference between population health and individual health? Yes, I guess if it, and the two things don't have to be mutually exclusive, but if I was spending you know, money on health, I would be spending money on clean water and toilets and mosquito nets and things like that. Um, this is on a worldwide basis. Here in Australia, of course, we're um, incredibly privileged to have clean water and to not have to worry about malaria and, uh, and, and nearly all of us have access to toilets, you know, most of the time. I guess I was making the comment uh, earlier over our banana cake in the sunshine that um, if I had money to spend, I wouldn't be spending it on personalised, um, genetically uh, matched um, tr uh, treatments for things because that's only available to people in incredibly wealthy countries like Australia. And the other thing we talked about in a similar vein was population control or birth control, I should say, mm -hmm. and the, the women having access or not having access to it. Do you want to comment on that as well? Well, research shows that um, almost all women worldwide, regardless of their um, particular um, culture that they're from or their socioeconomic status, you know, want to be able to have an appropriate number of children that are going to reach adulthood. Reaching adulthood is the key thing. But if you are living in a place like the Mayapuri slum or any of the slums in New Delhi um, or, or anywhere in India, then uh, you're much more likely that your children are going to, to die young. And so uh, those kind of that women in that circumstance would have six or eight kids because they're just not sure many of them are going to make it. But what we've seen in places like um, Iran, for example, which used to have a very high number of women who are having sort of, you know, six to eight children, is that as soon as the women had the opportunity to have uh, birth control, they took it. And it didn't matter whether they had two kids or four kids or six kids. Whatever number they were up to, as soon as they got the opportunity to have um, birth control, then, then they took it. So women uh, throughout the world would like to control their fertility. Uh, there's exceptions, obviously. <laughs> you know, in, in well, uh, if they have a large or a small family, it's still their control. Yes, that's right. It is still in their control. If, if uh, so, there's, for example, the Hutterite people up in Canada. Um, you know, they have the world's largest fertility. That the average woman has ten children, um, who all make it to adulthood. Um, but that's a religious thing, and that's but that's their choice. You know, their choice is that that's the size of families they want. But most people want to actually have some kind of uh, choice to, in now, the matter. Now, here we are. We did say at the top of the program we weren't going to discuss the plague, but it really <laughs> strikes me that if you've got ten people living in a three-by-three three square building right now with the COVID going through, that must be horrendous. Do you ha Have you heard any news about how it's progressing in those areas? One of the problems we've got in a place like the slums of New Delhi is that... Uh, is actually being able to get out and get people tested. So one of the things that has been done for Delhi as a whole, not just the slums, is to test people's blood for antibodies um, to see whether or not they have had um, COVID-19 in the, in the past. And the most recent testing that I'm aware of, doesn't necessarily mean it was the most recent, but the most that I know of, um, showed that something like about 27% of people in New Delhi had um, already had COVID-19 at some point. Now, that's a, that's a city of 25 million people, so we're talking millions and millions and millions of people. 
Um, so the figures that are coming out of a place like India, like, are only people who've actually had a coronavirus uh, nasal swab or throat swab. So the numbers are much, much higher there. And the problem is that because people are immunocompromised, they're uh, in slums now I'm talking about. So they're not healthy anyway, probably. They're not healthy. They don't have proper diets. Uh, they're working very hard. And they don't have the treatments once they do get sick. Yeah. So, um, so we can't really rely on the figures coming out of a, a place like India. Um, but it is bad, is all I can say. That's the, the information that we have is that it is bad. All right. Now, we were talking a moment ago about the element of choice and about how affluent we are in a place like Canberra and Australia and other Western countries. And I'm, I'm taking that's a segue to a 90 degree turn because one of the choices we have is smoking. And I understand that you've been doing some work on e-cigarettes and what's your work on that? Well, the team that I'm in has been doing um, a lot of work on uh, e-cigarettes. Not, uh, it's not uh, me personally, or all on my own. One of the things about population health is it's always about teams. It's groups of people. Uh, so tobacco uh, smoking is still the biggest preventable cause of death uh, in Australia, uh, preventable things that you can stop. Um, so we've been asked, the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health was asked by the government to do a review on the evidence uh, and we found a number of things about uh, e-cigarettes which are comparatively new so therefore there's not a massive amount of material available. So we found things like uh, if people don't, have not smoked tobacco before but start off smoking with e-cigarettes then they are three times more likely to take up tobacco smoking. Oh, so it's a, it's a gateway it's to a, it's tobacco. A gateway. Yes, so yeah. it's a gateway to tobacco. So if you haven't smoked before and you start smoking e-cigarettes, e you're three times more likely to end up smoking tobacco. We also um, were able to find that uh, people who are using it as a quitting agent, so they're already smoking tobacco and think, well, I'm going to start using e-cigarettes to quit, it will actually take them uh, on average 10 times longer and it's a lot less successful. The most successful method for quitting smoking is cold turkey, but of course that's absolutely horrible uh, for everybody. <laughs> well, uh, having never been a smoker, but I can under understand that if you're if you have the biological addiction to the mm. cigarettes, that cutting the cigarettes is really really difficult, and you mm. add the psychology on top of that, then mm. it makes it even. More hard. And so individual people will say, oh, yes, but it's helping me quit smoking. But the evidence doesn't bear that out for the entire population. Huh? It does show that what tends to happen is that people are very shortly uh, after taking up e-cigarettes end up going back to tobacco and e-cigarettes at the same time. So it doesn't actually um, help them to quit. Okay. That's a bit of a myth. All right. So it's not an effective way to quit smoking or might mm. even lead you into smoking. Mm. What about... If you were a moderate heavy smoker and you couldn't give up, mm. but you could go to the e-cigarettes, are you going to have a better health outcome? Well, I'd like to paraphrase the uh, uh, Professor John Skerritt, who's the head of the Therapeutic Goods Administration, and he said that you could argue that uh, e-cigarettes are better than tobacco in the same way as you can say it's better to be hit by a car than to be hit by a truck, but neither of those is desirable. 
Okay, right. so it's not healthy to smoke. Uh, that's guess what I was uh, getting at is an e-cigarette is not a healthy product. Depends on what's in it, um, and e-cigarettes don't always have to have nicotine in them, but nicotine is actually a poison and it's an addictive substance. And as I say, if the problem with uh, e-cigarettes is that once people start using them, uh, they will continue to use them because they well, are addicted to them. Well, what, what is it in an e-cigarette? I'm, I think you're suggesting that they're highly variable anyway, are they? That's right. So what they do is put all these um, uh, flavours and things uh, in them, um, and usually nicotine. Now, in Australia, it's illegal to... Um, to sell nicotine uh, in liquid form, but it's not illegal to buy it. And so what people will do is uh, import it from overseas, but what the government is now planning to do is to um, introduce it uh, on prescription. So if you genuinely think that this is going to, as an individual, that this is going to help you, then you would be able to get it on a prescription. Um, and uh, and that's a good thing for it to be controlled, but we don't want it to be the way it is, say, in the UK, where every corner store uh, has, um, you know, vaping centres and things like that, because what that has done is actually increase the p number of people smoking the e-cigarettes, and then after that, increase the number of people smoking tobacco. Well, uh, a tobacco cigarette... The, the not the e-cigarette, mm. has a lot of particulates mm. in it too, doesn't it? Yes. Yep. And does, are they in a e-cigarette or is it, uh, not, are they not so, present? Well, like I say, if there's just the one, you know, if, you, if you're comparing one cigarette to, you know, a, a tobacco cigarette with a, an e-cigarette, yeah. then yes, the e-cigarette is healthier, but it's better not to have it I, at all because of where it leads you to. I, I'm, I'm thinking this has a personal connection because I've got a family member who's a type 1 diabetic who's a moderate slash heavy smoker mm. and he's had no luck at all giving up the cigarettes mm. and he's almost completely lost the vision in one eye, he's got mm. kidney problems, he's had toes removed mm. and it's, it's basically it's killing him mm. and I would have thought he'd be better off with an e-cigarette, maybe hitting with a bus instead of a truck but uh, it's not a good... Not a it's good, not a good place to not, be. No. Not, not a good look. What, what are the smoking rates in Australia? Because they have declined a lot. Yeah, we're amongst the lowest in the world. Um, we can't claim to be the lowest in the world because different countries uh, measure it in different ways. Uh, so, you know, is someone a daily smoker? Do they smoke once a week? Do they smoke 20 packs a day? Um, well, that would be a record. Um, but um, so different countries measure it in different ways. But we're down to around about the 11% um, daily smoking here in Australia. Different countries have uh, different levels and also um, and different um, sex ratios. So, for example, in China, it's very common for men to smoke and very rare for women to smoke. Whereas in Australia, the proportion is approximately the same. Do we do we know what the population percentage using e-cigarettes is? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, as I say, it's unregulated in Australia at the moment. So there's probably no real, not much good stats available yet on that, perhaps? I'm only saying uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a reasonable answer. Well, uh, I think... We don't want to be smoking <laughs> at all. Um, do you know how effective the uh, the so-called plain packaging was? Which always struck me as funny because plain packaging is not 
plane at all. It's got those hideous pictures on it. But that was a very big uh, public health initiative. Yes, um, absolutely massively important. There's uh, loads and loads of research on... uh, on this, um, on its effectiveness, because it's actually been copied around the world, and they talk about it being, you know, the Australian model. The most effective thing that you can do to reduce tobacco smoking from a uh, policy perspective is to increase the price, um, and that's what we've done here in Australia. Our cigarettes are amongst the most expensive in the world. But then the second most important thing you can do is to actually make it difficult for people, and thirdly socially unacceptable and those three things um, are what drive down the tobacco smoking uh, here in Australia. So plain packaging has been incredibly um, good at doing that. But we still have that stubborn 11%. I imagine getting it much below that is going to be difficult. There's no evidence of that. That's Sorry. Really? That that was an uninformed (laughs) comment there. so. Uh, So that's called the hardened smoker hypothesis. You know, the idea that there's a little group of people who just never, ever, ever, ever will give up. Um, And uh, when we look at it from a population basis across, you know, multiple countries, there is no evidence that there there are people that will never give up. I mean, there'd be individuals, of course, but there isn't a a solid group of people that that cannot do it. Okay. I'm glad to be corrected there, Cathy. Now, what what can we do about the remaining 11% uh, that we're not already doing? Increase the cost of cigarettes again. I'm probably going to get death threats now from smokers. Um, Doing all the things that we're doing now, um, making e-cigarettes harder to obtain because that, as I say, leads to tobacco um, use, Um, making it more difficult for people to actually be able to smoke anywhere um, and continuing um, to make it socially unacceptable. Oh, like stopping it inside pubs. I can remember going into pubs and and it was just a thick fog. I can remember being in a workplace and there was just a cloud of smoke Mm. in in an office. That was just hideous. I'm totally not missing that. (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) Well, we're we're running to the end of our time, and that gives me a moment to uh, mention our Ask Fuzzy column, which appears each week in the Canberra Times. And we've got one about mosquitoes. There you go, a population health issue as well. And I mull on the question of why they itch and how the mosquito, little proboscis, got this little microsore teeth and it pushes it into your skin, or she, in fact, uh, takes your blood and leaves you with a whole pile of proteins, hundreds of proteins, many unidentified. Not a lot of fun, especially if you're going to get dengue fever, Zika, uh, chikungunya and malaria. there you go that's a population health conversation <laughs> for another day Kathy well it's been a, a lot of fun talking to you today and we'll have to get you back on air again I'm sure there's there's so much more that we we could talk about uh, so I guess today on Fuzzy Logic is Dr Kathy Day uh, from the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health Hurrah! That's right. All right, well, that's it from me. Got to go. Catch you later.